0: morning. Today's reading will be from John 19, so if you're able, could you stand with me, please? Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar's. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement. And in Aramaic, Gabatha. now behold your king of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Um, just a kind of re-announcement. Um, if you didn't hear, in January and February, it's a kind of a trial season for corporate prayer. We're gonna have a free meal out in the lobby starting at about 11:30, right after service, and um, it's 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 a pretty cool opportunity because the early church dedicated itself to four things: app teaching, prayers, breaking of bread, and fellowship. And in this corporate prayer session, you'll be able to do three of those four things. You'll break bread, you'll fellowship with one another, and then you'll get to pray. So we invite you guys to stay. It's a free meal um, after the service. If you guys could, let's pray before we jump in to our text. Jesus, we love you, Um, Father. We ask that you would bless us with your Spirit today, um, that we would be able to see in Jesus, particularly in his wounds our means of redemption, our means of standing before you, our means of coming before you in prayer, our means of being reconciled to you as children of God. Lord, I pray that today and every other day following that we would hide ourselves in the wounds of Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So yesterday was... uh, Um, epiphany that's where the you know the, the wise men travel to to find jesus they're following the star and we have a song about that the three kings it goes like this we three kings of orient are bearing gifts we traverse afar field and fountain moor and mountain following yonder star now the bible calls them magi and it doesn't number them this song calls them kings and says three. Three because there were three types of gifts that they brought. Kings because a lot of the early church thought that these, three, that these people were fulfilling Isaiah 60, verse 3 and 6, which says this. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. They shall bring gold and frankincense. And so, here in this Matthew 2 story about the kings, whether they're kings or not, maybe they're just wise men from afar, we have a right picture of how we ought to worship Jesus as the king. We travel afar, we treasure him, we worship him, we bring him kingly gifts, we give him the glory that he's. Do This is truly how we ought to treat the king of kings, but in today's passage we see a vastly different treatment of the king of kings. In our passage today we see Pilate, who's under the authority of another king named Tiberius Caesar, falsely giving Jesus over to crucifixion. Today we see in our passage the Jews, the very people Jesus came to reveal the Father to, crying out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Our text today is a continuation of last week, Pastor David's text, which the focal theme was king. David asked the question last week, are you the king of The Jews. And this is a continuation of that same question. And directly before David's text, three weeks ago, Pastor Scott preached on um, another text in John. And he talked about the irony that is all throughout the book of John. And it's something that we've picked up on and off over and over again. But this literary device that Pastor Scott pointed out three weeks ago, the literary device of people speaking more. Than they actually know they say a phrase and they intend it to mean something but it actually goes well beyond the meaning that they intended this literary device becomes the lens through which we will look at our passage last week we saw it in the great exchange we saw barabbas which means the son of the father literally being exchanged with Jesus, who really is the son of the father. And that speaks to more truth than it really knew. It wasn't just a criminal going free, it was speaking to the concept that we go free because Jesus was crucified. And in this week, we will see it in the words of Pontius Pilate. His words will ring with irony because nearly everything he says is true to a level that he did not intend, which is why today the sermon is entitled, The Gospel According to Pontius Pilate. Because Pilate today, whether he knew it or not, is going to preach to us the good news of Jesus Christ. He didn't know that Psalm 102, 18 would also be applied to him. It says this, Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created May praise the Lord. Pilate's words have been recorded. And even to this day, a generation that is to come will continue to hear the gospel, though he did not intend so. And so today, we're gonna behold Jesus as the man-king in suffering and innocence. We will behold him as the God-king who is silent and submissive. And finally, we'll behold him as your king, your king, condemned and crucified. We'll have some applications throughout, but essentially what we're doing today is we're doing what Pilate commands us to do. In verse 5, he says, behold the man. And in verse 14, he says, behold your king. So let's look at our first point. Our first point from Pontius Pilate is this. Behold the man king in suffering and innocent. And this is coming from verses 1 through 6. John writes this. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw them, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. End quote. These six verses are all centralizing around verse 5's, Behold the man. Behold the man. And again, Pilate obviously thinks Christ to be a man. But from the perspective of Christians, this sounds more like a confession of faith than just a statement of obviousness. Pilate, yeah, he's obviously a man. He's bleeding. Look at him. But for Christians, this is the core of Christmas, that Jesus is a man. And that's because we have a prior belief to his manhood, that this is God the Son who now has become a man. And so when Pilate says, behold the man, and we look with a believing heart, what we see is God the Son being flogged, beaten, mocked, arrayed in a purple robe, twisted with a crown of thorns on his head. An unbelieving heart just simply sees a man who's under the authority and power of maybe one of the most powerful governments ever to rule the world in Rome. kind of an analogy. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Rocky. I really like the Rocky movies. My wife came huge, invincible Russian guy Drago. And at one point in time Rocky actually gets off a jab and he he lands a little cut on him. And it and his guy in the corner goes, "You see? He's not a machine. He's a man." Right? That that's kind of what's going on here. Pilot saying, "You see, he's just a man. He bleeds like everyone else. But when a believing heart sees this Christ, We understand that it's God doing this, not not just a man. He sees God the son being beaten, mocked, bruised, flogged, and crowned with thorns, according to his human nature. The one who gives value to all value is being treated As such, the one who's beyond suffering is now suffering. The one who created mankind is now mocked, beaten, and bruised by the mankind he created. The believing heart cries different. He doesn't say he's a machine. You see, he's a man. He says, you see, he's God the Son, and he's a man. Are you the king of Jews? Yes, And here we see the king's humanity as the temple veil, Christ's flesh, is beginning to be torn in front of us. So the gospel according to Pontius Pilate begins with an orthodox confession. Jesus is a man, and we ought to behold that man. Particularly, we ought to behold his wounds. Before moving on to our second point, there's two more elements that go along with Pilate's gospel here to be found in these six verses. The first one is found when we survey specifically the sufferings mentioned of Jesus in our text. The man Jesus was flogged. Now, this can be a little confusing if you're paying attention to other gospel accounts. Jesus is actually flogged after he's given over to crucifixion, but in John's account, he's flogged before he's given over to crucifixion. Likely what's going on here is Jesus is actually flogged twice. There are three levels of flogging. D.A. Carson pointed this out to me in Rome. There's like a level one, which is just a very light flogging. Level two, a little bit heavier, and then level three is the one that we all think of. You know, there's glass, there's shards of bone, all that stuff in the whips. Level three is what happened to him after he's given over to crucifixion. Level one's what happens here, and the whole point is, Pilate's just flogging him lightly to try to satisfy the bloodlust of these Jews so that they'll be like, okay, you know what? Yeah, that's fine. We're satisfied now. Pilate's trying to get Jesus to be freed, essentially, here. Now, the soldiers then put a crown of thorns onto his head and a mock purple robe symbolizing royalty onto his back. Then they come up to him and mock him with a Roman royalty line with one change. Usually when Caesar's around, soldiers would go, Hail, Caesar. Well, now they go to Jesus and they go, Hail, Caesar king of the Jews. And so they're mocking him with that as well. After saying this, they would slap him. Now what's interesting, in the Greek, in the slapping part, it actually says, they gave to him slaps to the face. It's literally the the verb for gifting something. And so, think back to our magi. Our magi travel across the world to give to him kingly gifts. And now here we have the Roman soldiers giving to him the gift of slapping his face. Now for us here, for us Christians who believe we should take a good Christ. that we find refuge. It's in the wounds of Christ that our sin is actually dealt with. It's in the wounds of Christ where we have a safe place to stand. In Moses' day, The rock was wounded, it was clefted, and Moses was put into the rock so that God's glory could pass by and Moses wouldn't be destroyed. It is the same with New Testament believers. We are hidden in the clefted rock, in Jesus' wounds, so that we can look at God's glory and remain safe and secure. Christ was wounded so that we could stand before God. So we should survey the wounds of Christ. Our final element for Pilate's gospel in this point is found in verse 4 and 6, a twofold confession. Pilate says twice, I find no guilt within him. And again, he's speaking more than he knew. What he's that earns him, it merits him the gift of crucifixion. That's what Pilate means, but it means so much more when you look on it with a believing heart. Because Jesus has no guilt of any kind within him. Jesus had never done anything foolish at any point in his life, and he had never done anything sinful at any point in his life. In the Bible, there were really only three full human beings as they ought to have been. Adam and Eve before they fell, and Christ his entire life as a man. Always worshiping God, always obeying God, always giving his entire heart, soul, being, and strength to God. This makes Jesus the realest man ever was and when we then start applying that to his sufferings it means that when he suffered he felt it more than any other man when he suffered unjustly he felt that unjustness more than any one of us in this room could ever feel injustice of any kind when he was mocked, he felt it more than we. When the thorns of Adam's curse crowned his brow, he felt it more than we. He is the realest man there ever was, and his suffering was the realest suffering there ever was. Crowned with our curse. crown him with many thorns. That's not how the song goes, but that's how it goes in this passage. Why thorns? That was a question I asked. Why thorns? Thorns show up at the beginning of Adam's curse. Thorns are one of the first things God brings onto the earth as a result of sin. And now we have the king of kings being crowned with Adam's curse. It's because Jesus is not just redeeming Adam and Eve in his wounds. Jesus is redeeming something more. And children, you're going to help me with this one. I think you know this one. It's actually really short. Question 26, what else does Christ redeem? Every part of fallen creation. Good job. Every part of fallen creation. He's crowned with thorns because Jesus' redemption is gonna go beyond just mankind and restoring them. It's restoring the universe to God's glory. So our first point is we ought to listen to Pilate and we have to behold the man. Our second point is, that Pilate wants us to do is behold the God King who is silent and submissive. And this is coming from verses seven through 11. John writes this, the Jews answered him, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin, end quote. Now, Pilate doesn't actually say Jesus is God outright in our text. Today, it's actually something that's more spoken to from Pilate's fear in verse 8. Everything here is centering around the Jews' statement, he has made himself to be the son of God. The Jews responded, right? They respond to Pilate's pronouncement of innocence by appealing to God's law. Now, they don't call it God's law. They say, we have a law, and according to that law, this man ought to be put to death. Now, likely what they're doing, this is a very vague reference. They're not They're not saying, oh, and from this verse and this passage, he ought to be put to death. But what they're likely referencing is Leviticus 24, 16, which says this, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And their whole um, accusation turns on the phrase that Jesus has made himself out to be the son of God. Now, he's not blaspheming because he is the Son of God, but from their vantage point, he is, right? Now, Son of God is a term that has messianic implications, that Jesus is the Messiah, right? It, it, Son of God sometimes referred to the Messiah. There's a couple of ways that it's spoken of in the Old Testament. Sometimes Son of God is applied to the whole country Israel, the people of God. They're sometimes called the Son of God. Another more particular way that Son of God shows up in the Old Testament is of David's kingly line, and that's where we get this messianic line that eventually one of the sons of David will sit on the throne forever, right? Now John... Yes, he agrees that not only does it refer to the Messiah, and it also refers to the redemption of Israel, but John tells us Son of God, as Jesus intends it, means a little bit more, and that the Jews understood this to mean a little bit more. John tells us that Son of God means that Jesus shares in the nature of God the Father and shares in the very authority of God the Father. And the Jews seemingly understood this to some degree, because all the way back in John 5, Verse 18, it says this This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, this next part in our text is where we get our second point that Jesus is God, not just a man. Pilate was afraid and his fear seems to proclaim to us this idea that Jesus is more than just a man. Now, Pilate could be afraid for a number of reasons. I'll give two reasons that I had seen through various commentators. He could be afraid because a claim to be the Messiah could lead to an insurrection, a rebellion, and then Tiberius Caesar comes over and says, Pilate, you had one job, keep the peace, you failed your job, now you're dead. Right? That, that could be one reason he's afraid, and that makes sense. And that's also in our text later on. Another reason he could be afraid is like many Romans, they were superstitious. They did believe in this idea of demigods or beyond just merely a man. It could be that. Whichever, if not both, this fear caused Pilate to get to the crux of the issue by asking Jesus a question that seemingly states that he thought Jesus might be more than he claimed to be. Where are you from? Where are you from? Now, our text says Jesus doesn't answer here, and we have two reasons for that. Reason number one, which is, it's almost hilarious how many Christians in history pick up on this reason. It's like every Christian I ever read when I was studying for this text made this point. Clearly, here, Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah 53, 7, which says, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So one reason is, he's literally the lamb going before his death, and he remains silent as Isaiah 53 answered this question. Where are you from? Pastor David last week pointed this out in chapter 18, verse 37. It says this, Jesus states, For this purpose I was born, And for this purpose I have come into the world. Jesus' birth, his coming, implies that he existed before he was born and before he had come into the world. And so he's already kind of answered to Pilate, I'm not from here, I came here. And so that could also be a reason. So Uh, He was someplace else before he came into the world. That's the implication there. He was born as a man and that he was someplace else before he came into the world. So Pilate's question is also answered a little bit later in verse 11. When Jesus says to Pilate that he would have no authority over Jesus unless it's from above. And the authority that Pilate has to do with Jesus, whatever he wants, is also from above. Jesus is not just a man. He is also God the Son. Before moving on to our final point, let's look at verse 11 a little bit closer. Um, this one can get really confusing, at least for me, because on first read, it kind of looks like Jesus is talking about the authority from above, talking about God the Father. And then all of a sudden, he goes into the one who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And it's like, how do those two things work together? So let's read that a little bit here. Verse 11, he says this. Jesus answered Pilate You would have no authority over me at all Unless it had been given to you from above Therefore he who delivered me over to you Has the greater sin So Pilate makes the claim to Jesus in verse 10 That I have the power to kill you Or to release you And then Jesus responds here with verse 11 And there's two parts And if we don't separate those parts It gets confusing Part 1 This is what Jesus says in verse 11 Part 1 that Pilate's authority over Jesus is not because of Pilate's earthly authority that derives from Tiberius Caesar, the king of Rome, but rather, his authority over Jesus is granted to him from God the Father above. Everything Pilate does is in line with God's will, which is a pretty strong statement because what did Pilate just do? He flogged Jesus, he mocked Jesus, he slapped Jesus. He crowned Jesus with thorns. He put a robe on Jesus, mocking him as king. The father grants to Pilate the current position that he finds himself in in judging the Lord Jesus. Our ancient brother, Cyril of Alexandria, he summarizes this point neatly while making a qualification. He says this. Um, he says that Pilate has been given power from above not because God the Father imposed the suffering of the cross on his own offspring against his will but because the only begotten himself gave himself to the suffer for us as the father allowed the mystery to be accomplished in him it is therefore the consent and sorry it is therefore the consent and agreement of the father that is said to have been given here as well as the will of the son Pilate is doing what he's doing because it is God's plan. Now, part two, it switches completely to the opposite thing. So if part one was about God's authority and God's using of this mock- this shame trial of Jesus, part two is now man's responsibility. What does man own in this? If God is sovereign over this, is man responsible for this, right? And part two is no longer about God the Father, but it's about the one who delivered Jesus over to Pilate. So who is that? Now our options are are a few. We have a few options here. The first is Judas. Because Judas, all the way back in chapter 6, the word delivered is the word we get for betrayed. So when we see the one who betrayed him, that's the one who delivered him over. So Judas throughout from 6 on occasionally is marked off as the deliverer of Christ. But it, it, it could also be Annas or Caiaphas, the high priests because quite literally Annas delivers him over to Caiaphas, Caiaphas delivers him over to Pilate. It could also refer to the Jews, this group that's at this trial. If you look at verse 16, Pilate finally caves into these these, these uh, this group and it says this, So Pilate, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now, again, our ancient brother Cyril of Alexandria is helpful here. He says this. So he delivered, sorry, Cyril ascribes the greater sin of verse 11 to Judas and to the Jewish leaders and to the crowd. So Cyril goes, all of the above, right? And I think that's true, but I would add in, I think by verse 16, you can add Pilate's name to that list. I think by verse 11, Pilate hadn't yet delivered him over. But by verse 16, Pilate adds his name to that list. And so we have a kind of delivering, a passing of the delivering torch. We have Judas to Annas to Caiaphas to the Jews to Pilate to the Roman soldiers to crucify him. But in all this, we must remember part one. Jesus, the son of God, equal with the father, was silent as the lamb king was prepared for slaughter. Jesus and all this was merely being submissive not to Judas, not to Annas, not to Caiaphas, not to the Jews or Pilate. But ultimately, Jesus was being submissive to God the Father because he is from above. Our third and final point is this. Pilate tells us to behold your king condemned and crucified. And this is verses 12 through 16. John writes this. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified, end quote. So the Jews first tried to twist God's law to strong arm Pilate into giving him over to crucifixion. And now they're using Roman law and Roman politics to try to strong arm Pilate's arm into uh, giving him over. Uh, They say, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Now there's an interesting kind of historical thing in Rome. Caesar's friend, a friend of Caesar, was an actual official title of someone. Now, there's debatable historical evidence whether or not that was around by the time of Jesus or if it was a little bit after Jesus. So whether that's an official title and they're threatening Pilate's title or they're just meaning it kind of like, no, you're going against Caesar and I'm going to bring Tiberius back against you if you release this man. Threatening insurrection, rebellion and all that stuff. Either way, it proves out to be the same thing. The Jews here are not threatening him by use; They're now threatening him here by using Roman law and politics. We will make it known that you are no friend of Caesar, and then Caesar will be forced to deal with you, dear Pontius Pilate. So then Pilate brings Jesus out on the judgment seat. The judge of all the earth is now going to be judged. And John in of the Passover. Now this line causes a lot of confusion because the Passover feast had already happened Jesus had the Passover feast with his disciples and instituted the Lord's Supper with it. And so how is it the day of preparation of the Passover if the Passover feast has already happened? Well, it's pretty simple. Day of preparation always refers to Friday before Sabbath. The Jews would prepare meals. They would prepare things so that they could rest on the Sabbath. The day of preparation of the Passover is the Friday on Passover week. That's what's going on here. Now, there's a double meaning, though. John does want us to think of the Passover meal, which is why I think it's slightly confusing. He wants us to think of a day in which you take the lamb and you slaughter it in preparation for the Passover meal. Even though that had already happened, John wants that picture in your mind as Jesus quite literally is being slaughtered and prepared as the true Passover lamb Here are these What's really interesting here is look at Behold your king We hear these words One other time in John In John 12 Starting the Passover week when he Enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday Now in John 12 Jesus comes In verse 15 and Zechariah 9 9 is quoted Jesus is Riding on the donkey and Zechariah 9 9 is quoted And this is what it says fear not daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, that was the beginning of Passover week, and what kind of cries were met? What kind of cries was Jesus met by? Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel and now flash forward five days to our text today. We hear the same words of Zechariah 9:9. Behold your king. And it's not met with Hosanna and celebrations, but rather it's met with this cry. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. A lot changed in a week. Pilate responds to these cries. Shall I crucify your king? Again, speaking well beyond what he knew. Shall I crucify your king? Yes, Pilate, because that is what the Nicene Creed says. The Nicene Creed states, Jesus was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. So Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. The unbelieving heart sees here just a mere historical record at best. A man was beaten, a man was delivered up to be crucified. Perhaps there was some false accusations, there's some injustice, but that's it. The believing heart cries out with Charles Spurgeon after he discovered Christ's Injured love And the believing heart cries out this I had slain the Lord Who had come to save me Mine was the hand that had made the hammer fall The hand that had driven the nails Which fastened the Redeemer's hands And feet to the cruel tree The believing heart continues Through this revelation of its own wickedness Unto the green pastures Of our good shepherd's love and says this I am Barabbas and Jesus took my place. He died for me. Behold your king. Now to conclude, I want to kind of go back through the entire text. So that was only half, and I'm, but but it, I am. But it's not half, it's more than half. Uh, we're going to talk about the king theme, and I want to highlight another. We've heard king, king, king all the way through. I want to highlight the king theme again, and I want to show you an even deeper Irony that goes back thousands of years in this text. So Matt Carter, commentator, he does a good job summarizing the king theme. Four times, Jesus is publicly referred to as king in chapter 1839, 1914, 1915, 1919 through 22. He's dressed like a king and mocked, right? Like a king in our text today. He's rejected as the king of the Jews in verse 15. We have no king but Caesar, and then finally, we see Jesus make claims throughout 18 and 9, the authority of heaven. And so we see king four times throughout these two chapters. So king, 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 all the way throughout the text. But there's an Old Testament narrative that lays under our text today that I think drives the king theme straight into the heart. When Pilate's gospel first records this, back in verse five, behold the man. This is a word-for-word quote from 1 Samuel 9, 17, which says this, when Samuel saw Saul, the first king of Israel, the Lord told him, behold the man of whom I spoke to you. What is interesting here is that when Israel first cried out for a king, they did so by looking out to other nations around them. We have no king, we need a king like these guys over here, right? And then 1 Samuel 8, a chapter before what I just read to you, verse 8-7, it reveals that what was really going on is that they were rejecting God. God says this to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like father, like son. Jesus, who truly is the king of the Jews, is rejected And in rejecting Jesus, the Jews literally reject God once again from being king over them. They say, we have no king but Caesar. Caesar is our king, not God. Like Pilate, these Jews spoke truer than they knew. Their heart state was in a state of unbelief, and they had God not as their king. The more our hearts receive the light of Christ, the clearer of a response that is demanded of us. The more we see of Jesus' glory, the clearer our authority and our loyalty must be made known. There are only two choices put, put before us today. Jesus is our king, or our allegiance lies elsewhere, not with God. So what do you see when you look at Christ Do you see a mere man in history suffering and dying? Do you say maybe all the right things, but your heart's nowhere near the words, right? Like Pilate, he said all the right things, but his heart was not in it. Do you see only the outer appearance of Christ, a powerless man suffering under a powerful empire? If you do not believe in Christ, believe. Because with the eyes of faith, you will see the king of kings, the Lord of lords, God in the flesh. A believer's heart sees the man king, the God king, the lamb king. It sees your king. It sees our king. It sees the father in the face of Christ. In sin, we crowned him with many thorns. In grace, we shall crown him with many crowns. Let's pray. Father, um, again, every week when we get up here to proclaim something of Jesus, we do so in weakness, and we do so um, not the way it ought to be done. We ask that you would be with our weakness, that you would show us mercy as a church and grace, and that you would open our eyes, that your spirit would be amongst us, and we would actually be able to see these truths, that we wouldn't merely say these truths because we know it's the right thing to say in the Christian circles, but it would be a firm, heart-born conviction because we've seen your glory in Jesus' face. Again, I ask that you would help us to grow in our faith and to hide ourselves in the wounds of Christ, for it's in his weakness that we're made strong. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.